All right, so what we're going to try to do in the next year is walk through the Old Testament. Uh, you might call this an Old Testament, Old Testament survey. Uh, generally speaking, we're going to try to take a book of the Bible um, and, and kind of dig in it. We're going to look deeply at some of the literary devices that are used. We're going to stretch ourselves a little bit. We're going to use some terms you probably never heard before. I'm going to try to explain those. Uh, but I want us to start out and state our purpose. Why study the Old Testament? Um, and the reason why we as believers look to the Old Testament beyond uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, which says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And clearly, as Paul wrote that to Timothy, the Scripture that he had in mind would be what we would call the Old Testament. Beyond that, in Luke 24.27... As Jesus walked on the road to Emmaus, he said, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The, our study and look at the Old Testament will enlighten us because we will see God's word come alive in the new. Because we understand what's going on in the old. And so we want to, it, we're required to do the due diligence to study, to learn, to, to find out. And so, like I said, it's a little stretching. Nobody in here, myself included, uh, speak Hebrew. Uh, none of us, um, as I have been studying this week, as, and I'm looking at the fact that the book of Genesis uh, is really a poem. Uh, in it, there are literary devices such as comedy. There's, there's epic. There's all kinds of things that are on purpose put into to the, the, the story that are lost to us in translation. Um, to my own frustration, I was, I was looking in my Hebrew uh, uh, Bible that I have, uh, that I used in seminary, and I'm, I can, I'm finding my notes in, written in the margins, and I'm like, I don't remember what these little squiggles mean anymore, because it's not a language, even if you did study it, it's not a language we use every day. And so there are nuances, just like... Uh, Ten years ago, I could preach in Spanish, and today I can barely order a meal in Spanish. Uh, five years ago, I could talk to people and have a conversation in Turkish, and today um, I mix my Spanish and Turkish up. I speak Spurklish. Um, and so if you don't use a language, you, you lose it. That's just the reality. And so there are some things that, that we're never going to grasp, like the Book of Lamentations is a highly structured Hebrew poem. Well, in translation, we can't see that. And so that's just something that we're going to have to read about and get an idea of, and I hope that we can do that. And so rather than starting out, my original plan had been to kind of start out and take a day or two and do Genesis and then a day or two to do Exodus. And I remembered as I, as I pre prepared over the last few weeks that that division is not how the Hebrew Bible is, is broken up. If you ask uh, a Jewish person, a person of the Jewish faith, um, the, what Bible do they use? What Holy Scripture do they use? They would probably refer to their Bible as the Tanakh. Um, that is not a term that we're, we use. In the, in, it's what we would call the Old Testament. The Tanakh uh, stands for uh, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. Uh, the Nevim is the prophet, prophetic writings. And the Kachuvim are the writings. So Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. That's the, the division of the Old Testament. And, um, and when Jesus says things like, 
and beginning with Moses and the prophets, that is what that term is saying. From Moses to the prophets is from Torah to through the writings all the way through the prophets. So it's saying the whole Bible, That's the, or the whole Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. Uh, when Jesus says that um, all the law and prophets can be summed up in love your neighbor as yourself, he's using the, the, the term for the uh, Tanakh. So the whole Old Testament, they would call the Tanakh, and again, those divisions are the Torah, uh, the Nevim, and the Katuvim, and uh, we're going to start out with the Torah. The Torah is what we would call the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Selhammer says they lay the foundation for the coming of the Messiah, and that God here affects the election in Genesis, redemption in Exodus, sanctification in Leviticus, direction numbers and instructions, Deuteronomy, of the Jewish people through whom he will bring into the world its two most treasured gifts, the living word, Christ, and the written word, the scripture. It is the foundation for this task which is laid by God in the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers in Deuteronomy. It is clear uh, in the original that those were cr created as one literary unit. It's kind of like the divisions that we have in our, our Old Testament aren't necessarily the way they were originally written. First and Second Samuel in the Hebrew Bible is one book. It's just one. It's the story of the kings. And then First and Second Kings would be their Second Kings. Um, the uh, Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew Bible is one book. So we've made some divisions that are a little bit unnatural. Uh, and in this case, the, the way we've broken down the five books isn't necessarily how it was originally written. You, we need to think of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as one book with five chapters or five distinct divisions. It's uh, one literary unit with five divisions. The overarching structural theme is the covenant which God establishes between himself and his people. Keeping in mind the first audience of the Pentateuch, the focal expression of this covenant is in the, co the Sinai covenant, which grows out of the promises made to Abraham. We see that God makes promises to Abraham that then extend because he said, from your seed, I will bless the earth. And then that extends through his children and their children and children's children's children all the way until Moses gives the covenant of the law at Sinai. And that is, that is the pinnacle of the Torah. That is what it's driving to. Um, Genesis lets us know where we came from. It lets us know the origins. In fact, the word Genesis really means origins. It lets us know the origins of creation, of mankind, of sin and evil, of history, <coughs> of sacred history. And as a subtle theological statement... As the book opens, God is just there. In the beginning, God. He is. And the author of Genesis doesn't, anytime you ever teach little kids, uh, um, they always say, well, who made God? That, and it always blows their mind. Nobody made God. He always was. And the writer in Genesis in a, a, immediately makes the presupposition that God simply is. He's the one who made everything. Um, I had a professor, Dr. Selhammer. He was my Old Testament professor in, at Southeastern. Um, he would say that Genesis 1 through 11 is God's word to the world, 
And the rest of the Bible is a commentary on that. That if you don't understand or have a solid grasp of the first 11 books of, of chapters of Genesis, then none of the rest of the Bible is going to make any sense. And so we're going to um, take it a little slower and that we're going to take some time and really dig into the fall. Um, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on creation. Uh, I remember when I took Old Testament survey that the first month we spent on creation. Um, because Dr. Selhammer, like I said, is a firm believer that you have to have a handle on the first 11 chapters or none of the rest of it makes sense. We're not going to quite take a month, but we're going we're to dig in. So let's, let's break down the book of Genesis, the scope of the book. The author spans the beginning of the known created universe to the gathering together of a chosen people in covenant with God. So it takes a huge chunk of human history, and it's covered in this one book. It goes from the first man, Adam is made, all the way to lots of people running around. Um, God takes the time to, to go through the names and sometimes that, that bogs us down because we, we read and so-and-so begat so-and-so and we can't pronounce the names and we don't know who these people are and what's going on. But if you ever sit down and take the time, I remember one time uh, Emily was a little, little bit girl when I was reading through Genesis. She was three or four. And she says to me something along the lines of, um, well, could that guy have known Adam or was he dead yet? Because we're just reading that, and he lived for 657 years, and then he died. And she's figuring out in her mind, kind of thinking, doing the math. And we, we actually sat down and took a piece of graph paper and made Adam one, right? And so it's, he goes 120 years, and then he has a son, and then we draw. And so we took this graph paper and drew it out. Now, that's assuming that, um, that the story's telling us all of it, which may be be an assumption that you can't necessarily make. There may be people that weren't important that were left out. But assuming that, that it's telling us everybody, um, Adam is born on day one. At year 130, Adam and Eve have a son. Uh, and then at year 235, Enoch is born. At year 325, Kenan is born. So you come all the way down to year 687. So 687 years after creation, this guy named Methuselah is born. Uh, is born, and Methuselah's name means when he dies, it comes. And if you look at this timeline, if the years line up, the year he dies is the year the flood begins. And so if, if that's the way that we're thinking about it is correct, I'm not saying the information, the information is given in the Bible so we know it's correct, but if we're, the way we're thinking about it is correct, then isn't it neat that the longest living person in the Bible that God was withholding his wrath, and that allowed him to live longer than anybody else named recorded. Because when he dies, the flood comes. So um, Lamech is born in 874. We're now nine generations down. So uh, Adam died at, at age 930. So Adam was alive and could have known Methuselah. They could have Adam would have been the old guy that lived down the street that worked at the five and dime or something that Methuselah wouldn't talk to. So Adam dies. Enoch is taken up by God in the year 987. Uh, Seth then dies in the year 1042. And Noah is born 14 years after that. So the 10th generation, Noah, is born. So Noah is alive at the same time as... Um, you've got still, Methuselah is still alive. Lamech is still alive. Uh, Enoch uh, is gone. You know, he was taken... 
So then Noah has three sons, Sham, Ham, and Japheth, and then everybody dies, right? So um, Methuselah dies the same year that the flood comes, uh, at year 1656. So then Sham, Ham, and Japheth are born. And then you get into Abraham is born in the year 1948. And then Peleg, who was alive when the continents divided, doesn't die for... 12 years after that. So Abram could have known Peleg. He could be like, hey, tell me about the time when all the... So with people living so long, you have the overlap that's unnatural to us. And so we drew this whole chart out from the information, but it gives us a lot of stuff. So Abram is born in 1948. Um, obviously, 1948 from Adam being one moving forward, not 1948 with us. Um, Ishmael is born in 2034. Sarah dies in 2085. Jacob is born in 2108. Abraham dies in 2123. Um, Isaac dies in 2268. And Jacob dies in Egypt in 2255. So the book of Genesis carries us through 2,225 years of human history. So that's a long span of human history. And in that story, you have all kinds of these arcs. Now, if you're reading it in English, you'll see, uh, starting with chapter 2, verse 4, a little phrase in English that says, these are the generations. That phrase is repeated throughout the book of Genesis. Those are called toledeths. In Hebrew, toledeth is, these are the generations of. And so the book of Genesis has these arcs that go from these are the generations of, these are the generations of, these are the generations of. You have multiple divisions of that. You have it in 2-4, you have it in 5-1, you have it in 6-9, you have it in 10 1-1, 11-1, 11-27, 11-25-12, 25-19. And so you have these generations, and that gives us the outline that the author wants us to follow in the story. And so it starts out with these are the generations of the heavens and earth because it starts out with creation. If you back up long enough, you get to nothing and God being satisfied in himself and there being nothing else and God creating everything that is. Uh, we're we're going to get into creation in great detail next week. So um, the scope of the book goes from end to end. The book of Genesis' primary audience, which is always important when we're thinking about the scope. Remember when we were looking at Revelation, we were looking at who the audience is because that helps us understand it. It always helps us whenever we're studying any book to know who is this book originally written to that helps us understand what's being said. Let me give you an example. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all telling the same story. They're telling it to different people by different people. So Matthew is a, clearly, if you you guys have all been reading in Matthew, because that's where our Bible reads from, you can tell that Matthew is educated. Um, He has a plan. In the book of Matthew, there's, there's these big picture things, and then the little picture things. The stories will repeat themselves. There, Matthew will present the picture as Jesus as king, and then over here he'll, he'll, there'll be some overlap, and he'll present Jesus as prophet, and then over here he'll present Jesus as priest. And so that's why in the book of Matthew you'll have the same sort of miracles happen in two different places. One is Jesus being represented as king, and he starts the book out with saying, hey, 
Jewish people, here's your king. You've been waiting for the Messiah. Here he is. And then later he's saying, not only is Jesus David's line, but he is the fulfillment of the great high priest. And he is also a prophet who proclaims what's going to come with authority. And so Matthew has these big sweeps. We know from his story that Matthew was a tax collector. So he is, it's amazing to me how much knowledge he has of Jewish history, Jewish law, because this is someone who walked away from his identity as a Jew by being a tax collector. He had abandoned his Jewish faith, and, but clearly he had been educated in it. And normally a Jewish boy would grow up and then at about age 12, the rabbis would say, okay, you ain't the brightest bulb in the bull box, Peter, so what you have to do is you need to go learn how to fish. Sorry, buddy. Hey, Matthew, you're a pretty smart guy. Why don't you continue to study with the rabbis and get some more information? Matthew had been clearly educated. If you read the book of Matthew, he has all these allusions to Jewish history, Jewish custom, Jewish culture. So Matthew is, is told that way. His audience is Jewish. Mark is clearly, when we get to Mark, you will see, is a young man, very excited. You can read the whole entirety of the book of Matthew in about 30 minutes. He's telling this story. He's like, and then one time Jesus was going along, and this lady walks up to him and touches the hem of his garment. And oh my gosh, everybody stop. And, and then immediately, and then immediately, and then immediately. And Mark is telling this story rapid fire to the point that you almost, after you finish reading the book of Mark, have to kind of... Okay, I got this story because everything's happening so fast. And in my mind, when I read the book of Mark, I can picture this young guy who's super excited about the faith that he has sitting around with a group of people going, and oh, wow, there was this one time when Jesus was doing this thing. And oh, I forgot about this time back here that he did this. And there's no order given. It's just shotgun all over the board. And it's just somebody excitedly telling a story. And Luke, he is writing primarily to to uh, Gentiles who don't, they don't know what these, all this stuff is. And so in Matthew, Matthew says, there are two angels, one at either side of Jesus' gravestone. To a Jew, that's immediately going to bring up the image of the Ark of the Covenant. That flat surface with two angels on either side. And Luke, he didn't even bother using the word angel. He says there are two guys there dressed in white apparel. Why would he do that? Because he's writing to people who have no idea what the word angel even means. And so from the outside looking in, it's two guys dressed all in white and their skin's really bright because they're Gentiles. They, they don't have a history of angelology. So what's the value of it? It's like going up to some, some redneck at ball play and talking about gargles. They're, you mean the cartoon? What are you talking about? And so he, the, knowing who the audience is helps us understand why things are presented the way that they are. It doesn't change the truthfulness of it. It's just how we tell the story. The book of Genesis is written to a group of Jewish people. Moses compiles stories written by multiple people. Maybe he had multiple written sources. Some people have noticed uh, and they've identified J, P, and D as three different authors that have, set, that have compiled information. Moses weaves that together. Um, whether that's true or not is immaterial. It's clear that Moses is the one that did it. We have that attested to as we look at author because Jesus believed that Moses was the one who wrote it, and he was there. So we're not going to question if Jesus said, as Moses told you, as Moses said when he's quoting the book of Genesis. So we can assume that since Jesus was there, he knew who wrote it. 
Strong Jewish tradition backs up that Jesus is the, 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 the uh, author and the New Testament witness. Jesus refers to the author as Moses in Mark 19, Luke 16, Luke 24, 27, and 44. Moses was highly educated. We know that from the stories that we have. Um, he was a part of the aristocracy of the most advanced Middle Eastern kingdom of that day. Moses knew how to write. Um, and uh, there are some people who are critical scholars who say, well, there's no way that, that Moses would have known how to write because only a professional scribe would have known how to write. But that, the, the evidence within the Bible tells us that that's not true. It doesn't change the truthfulness of Moses' authorship if Moses does draw from other sources. Moses wasn't alive when God said, in the beginning, let there be light. So had Adam told Enoch, who told Seth, who told Methuselah these stories, and somebody wrote them down, and then Moses compiled it all together in one book? That doesn't take anything away from it if that's the case. There are clear to textual critics, people who study the book in their Hebrew, there are, are clearly multiple different authors. The reason why uh, a lot of textual criticism books will use J, P, and D is who is primarily God, how is he referred to? Is he referred to as Yahweh? Is he referred to as Elohim? And so, because different sections seem to culminate around one usage. I think that the Bible is very clear that Genesis was written by Moses to a group of people who are standing around under, at the foot of Sinai or walking around in the desert. If you look at Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the end... The primary uh, narrative, Jesus, God is referred to here as Elohim. There's a second telling of uh, the creation in chapter 2, and God is primarily referred to as Yahweh. Uh, again, is chapter 1 a story that was written down long before Moses, and Moses compiled it in the book in 2, or vice versa? Uh, I don't know. I do know that Moses is the one that handed it out. We, uh, the purpose of Genesis is that it was given to the captive children of Israel an understanding of their God and how they're to relate to him. Again, the book of Genesis tells us who we are. It shows us lots of God's character, and it shows us what must happen for us to have a relationship with him. When Adam and Eve fall in the story, the first death occurs as God kills a lamb to make them close. That sin brings death. So it tells us a lot. The structure of Genesis uh, is two similar sets of toledes or generations. Uh, if you have an old, a King James, it'll say the things begotten or produce. Uh, from the earth, Adam came forward. From Adam to Abraham and his progeny will emerge, and eventually, out of Abraham, Jesus Christ will emerge. We see that in Matthew chapter 1. So we have these toledes. Now, chapter 1 is a little bit different, and I, I wanted to put this, this quote in here, because chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, is a record of creating, not begetting. So those toledes, these are the generations of, or so-and-so begot, it starts out because there was nobody to beget. And so rather than beget, we have created. 
which is an important principle for us as Christians to wrap our brain around, that God's creation was, and I'm going to use a fancy term, ex annihilio, which is Latin for out of nothing. So God didn't create from something that was already there. He created out of nothing. God is the only person that can create ex annihilio. If I want to make, uh, if Ann comes in and says, I need a nightstand, and I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to build you one. I have to go get the materials to put together to make one. Creating would be me walking into the bedroom and go, let there be nightstand. And there was nightstand, and it was good. No one other than God can create out of nothing. We have to start with other materials. In fact, no one who, no human has ever created anything. We've made things, and there's a difference. God creates. He starts out with nothing, and then he creates something, and then he molds that something into usable stuff. So, <clears throat> Genesis 1 through 2, 3 is a record of creating, not begetting. God does order the earth to bring forth plants and animals to bring forth other animals during the creation week. But Genesis conceives uh, of that God as God's own work rather than the begetting of earth. When we get to Genesis 2, earth is a more active partner. Watered by rain from heaven, the earth will sprout with plants. Man is presented as one of the begettings of heaven and earth, the product of earthly dust and heavenly breath. God creates from nothing. Heaven and earth and human beings are fruitful by begetting. And so I don't want to diminish the fact that, as we looked at uh, Evelyn Ray, uh, that whenever a new human being is born, that is an act of creation that God does. That there are But that is a part of a natural process. And I hope you see the difference. That in Genesis 1, God is creating out of nothing. From Genesis 2, 4 forward, the creation is participating with God. That God takes a man and a woman to make a new human being. That the way that God creates new plants is that seed fall from the old plants and it's watered and the sun heats it and it falls to the earth and dies and then a new plant comes. And so there's a different, that would be begetting, whereas um, creation originally would be creating, which would, I hope, brings up the question that we, we won't answer today, but let it percolate in your mind. Why does God refer to Jesus as his only begotten? So I'm, I'll leave that with you. All right, so um, now there's a, I stated when we started that the, there's a, um, this is, the book of Genesis is very highly structured in the Hebrew. So I don't know if you remember when you were in high school learning about uh, poems and how, so God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. So that would be an A, God is great. B, God is good, different sound. And then it goes back to A, let us thank him for our food. So it would be an A, B, A poem. Roses are red, A. Violets are blue, B. Uh, and is lovely would be A again, so are you. So the B and the B rhyme, right? So it would go A, B, A, B. So that's the sort of the way you think, of, think about things. If you look at the Toledes in Genesis, it actually goes A, 
generations of heaven and earth, B, generations of Adam, C, generations of Noah, then you have the new creation afterwards, and then we go A, generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, B, generations of Shem, and they tie together that B and B tie together in the way the word structure and the sentence structure happens. So you go A, B, C, flood, A, B, C, and then it ends with the generations of Terah, who is Abram's, uh, uh, Abram's dad. And then you have that break like the flood with uh, Ishmael. Devastating as the flood was on the history, Abraham's crisis with Ishmael is treated in the linguistic structure the same way. That the flood came because man had messed everything up and God had to get involved. Ishmael comes on the scene, man messed everything up and God had to get involved. Flood, ABC, Ishmael, and then it does this neat thing with Isaac, then comes back to Esau, and then Jacob. Um, and so the, the whole structure of the book is letting us see God at work. And so we see that God is at work, and we see... Um, we see that just at the fall, we have crisis, and then we have solution. And then just like with creation, after everything's created, God then works from the creation to continue creating everything. God works from the solution and builds on it. And that's an idea that we'll see as we study the Old Testament called progressive revelation. Let me explain what I'm saying. Okay, so we have creation. So God starts from nothing and makes something. And then he takes the creation and uses the creation as it is to beget new things and to grow it. So we have the fall, and then God comes up with the solution, with the curse. He sits down, he looks at the serpent and says, from her seed, something is coming that will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. That's a little bit of information. And then from that, that seed Moving forward through the whole of the Bible, God builds and builds and builds so that the story, that original tempo stays throughout the Bible. Something is coming. Someone is coming. And yet God builds and grows and grows the story until the crescendo really is. The whole pinnacle of the Bible comes to Jesus on that cross. And the, with Jesus on the cross, you can hear the echoes of the Passover lamb. You can hear the echoes of God splitting the Red Sea. You can feel the prophet's voice as it runs across the land, all in a crescendo at that moment in human history when the serpent's head is crushed and the, the seed of the woman's heel is bruised. And then, uh, I, with my children, whenever we watch a movie, uh, I will look at them and say, which story is it? Because in Western civilization, there are really only two stories. We just keep telling them over and over again. One of them is the hero's journey, which kind of, uh, the first writing of that we read in the, the Iliad, in the Odyssey, where a man or a woman, they go through a situation and outside forces are exerted on them, and then they go, they go through um, changes and there's conflict, and then ultimately they overcome. Um, Star Wars is a retelling of the Iliad. 
it, it, you can follow the track, work, the stories, the movies that are successful all follow the same path, the hero's journey, or the second story is the resurrection. And that is that the, our, our hero, the protagonist of the story, goes through lots of stuff, then they, everything comes crashing down around them, and it seems like everything is unattainable and destroyed, and then, boom, there's light at the end of the tunnel, and at the end of the day, everything is saved. Those are the only two stories we tell, and we mix them up. And that comes from the way that God has progressively told his story. We're used to the rhythms in all of Western literature. We're used to the rhythms of the Bible. And I'm only asking us today, as we look at this, to open your eyes to the fact that we see that, that progressive revelation that God starts, if you want to look at it musically, with just a little bit of a rhythm, maybe a little tone. And then across the course of human history, he builds on that and he adds to it. And there's nuance here. And we have a little bit more knowledge. And the, the curtain is pulled back a little bit until Jesus comes on the scene. And he starts speaking in ways that they can't understand because it's actually pulling back the curtain on the shadow of things that they've seen before. And so again, when we see Jesus on the cross, you should see hundreds of examples of that from the Old Testament. And then when Jesus gets out of that grave, then we should all go, ah, even the natural order, God, he created it, he can overcome it. So, and that we start seeing that in the book of Genesis. So I, I've given us an outline of the book of, generation, uh, uh, the book of Genesis, and you can see it follows those Toledes, over and over again, over and again. Um, so now we come to creation. And I, just real briefly, as I, we introduce this, I want us to recognize that Genesis 1 through 2, 4, and Genesis 2, 5 through verse 25. Now, critics will claim that there are two different authors for this. And their primarily reason is because in the first one, God is referred to as Elohim. That's God is creator, and in the second set, the name that God gave Abram, uh, I'm sorry, gave Moses at the burning bush is used for God. And so the writers will, uh, the critical writers will say, so clearly the first guy wrote this thousands of years before the second guy, and they are calling God two different names. I recently was watching uh, uh, some documentary on TV that was just on, it was actually at the hospital, and I had no ability to change the channel or know what, even what channel it was on. But there was an author there, and he, or some famous guy who had a lot of PhDs or whatever, that was saying, um, Genesis chapter 1 is contradictory to G Genesis chapter 2 and doesn't agree on any point. And one, this is happening, and two, this is happening. And I hope that next week we're going to look clearly at those. You'll see that there are no contradictions here. And it is fairly standard in Jewish writing to introduce things in a summation. As we see in Genesis chapter 1, this is what happened. Bam, big story. It's almost like if I were to, in one little paragraph, give you the history of, of the United States. There were a group of people, they were being oppressed by a, a foreign government, they stood up against him, had a revolution, and then they wrote a constitution to bring themselves together. In 1862, they ended up disagreeing about some things, got into a big fight, thousands of people died, and then they came together after that, and then they fought in World War II, and after that, the United States was a, a great 
uh, empire, yada, yada, yada. Bam. So that's the history of the United States in one, one sentence. Um, and then I were to go, okay, so in 1725, the British, and then I gave you more details. The British government has, had established 13 colonies in the Western Hemisphere kind of thing. That, that is really a super common way of telling a story in Hebrew. That's what we have here. We have the first kind of God made everything, and everything that is, he made it. This He made light, he made grass, he made trees, he made critters, he made Adam. And then he goes into detail. And the focus is what changes. In one, it's all detail, and I mean a big picture, and in two, he starts narrowing it down. He wants us to remember who the audience is. He's showing the Jewish people that God's been involved in your story from day one. And the whole of Genesis, we, in our mind, try to cut Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 out of the rest of the story of Genesis. And we forget that the whole of the book of Genesis is ultimately driving toward Sinai. And so it's written to a group of people so that they know that God's been involved in their history from the beginning. We'll see that next week in great detail. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that as we dig deeply that, um, again, Lord, that you open the eyes of our heart and that this would educate us and prepare us so that as we read your word, uh, we, we understand. In Jesus' name, amen.